Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I am Lisa Daftari. As we continue to break down foreign policy stories covering the Middle East, the impending deal with Iran, we have the tremendous honor today of speaking with a man who has seen it all from the front lines, not just in combat in war, but a different and sometimes more contentious front line at the United Nations. Please help me welcome Israel's 17th permanent representative to the UN, current chairman of the Likud party, Ambassador Danny Danone. Thank you very much for having me today, Lita. Of course, Ambassador Danone. Um, very interesting times. Uh, it's a tremendous honor to have you and somebody who truly uh, has had a very unique perspective of all of this. Um, more so than anything, I think we used to live in a world where uh, regardless of who was in the White House, Republican, Democrat, otherwise, um, we would always have a continuous support of Israel that was unwavering, that was unchanged, that was you know, extremely reliable. Uh, and you had the, again, unique experience of working both under President Obama and President Trump, two very different uh, foreign policies regarding and, and perspectives uh, regarding Israel. Um, you know, perhaps that is what led us to today uh, in anticipating or watching what's happening with the Biden White House and that relationship with Israel. Um, you know, are there any concerns right now in Israel regarding um, the friend that they may no longer have in the White House? So, uh, as you mentioned, Lisa, I served at the UN for five years, working with both administrations. And in general, I can tell you, we had the support uh, and the backing of, of both administrations. Unfortunately, uh, President Obama, before he left office, he decided to push forward Resolution 2334, which was a mistake, was a shameful resolution and a shameful moment for the relationship between Israel and the U.S. That was the only time that I actually had to, to fight against the U.S. at the U.N. and I was completely by myself. But uh, things are different and I'm uh, optimistic about the cooperation uh, and the continued support that we will get from the U.S. and the support Israel will give to the U.S. Uh, one thing that we have to put uh, into consideration is the JCPOA, the Iran deal. What uh, President Biden will do regarding the agreement, for us, that's the only issue. You know, we can right. speak about the Human Rights Council, about the Palestinian issue, yeah. Yeah. about the Gold, the Abraham Accord. We can handle everything. But the crucial point for us will be the decision of the president, whether he's re-entering the agreement uh, as it is or not. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke with the president. He spoke with him about this issue. Uh, and for us, we are waiting to see what will be the policy of the new administration. So let's talk about that call that uh, President Biden made to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, you know, sometimes I think the... Uh, the, the surrounding um, issues are more important than the call itself. Now, I'd like to ask you what happened in that call. But before that, uh, how about the silence that led up to the call? It took more than three weeks to get a call from President Biden to Bibi Netanyahu. Um, a lot of people like myself wrote about that, about how, why. Why are, are countries like China and Russia, our adversaries here in the United States, getting a call before our ally in the Middle East, Bibi Netanyahu? Um, you know, what was the feeling uh, in, in Israel in waiting for that call? Well, I, I think uh, it was not a coincidence. I, I think the White House wanted to send a message 
the message was received in Jerusalem. We understood it and we wanted what was to move the message? Basically, I think the message is that there is a new uh, sheriff in town. There is a, a new administration. Seeing it will be different. And uh, we, we accept it. We understand it. Uh, but uh, it's important for us to move on because the, the issues uh, and the challenges we are facing are important for the U.S. as well. And I'm happy that the phone call uh, took place. Uh, it took a while. You know, you mentioned it. You know, President Obama called uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu after four days. President uh, Trump called him after three days. And for President Biden, it took almost a month. Uh, but I think for us, it's not important anymore. Now it's important what will be the policy regarding Iran. And, and we want to remind everybody that uh, Iran of 2021 is not Iran of 2015. Some of the players came back to the White House and they were very involved in the in drafting the agreement with Iran. But today, the, the new reality, uh, Iran is in a different position. And uh, I hope that they will not just push the administration to re-enter the agreement. Right. Um, you know, bu building up to that, I and I and I want to get to that. I think that the the majority of our uh, our podcast today will be about the Iran deal. Um, obviously, something we 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 definitely want to get into that. But you know, I, I want to build up to that and talk about the you know global environment in which we live. You you very very correctly said um, that we live in a very very different environment than we did in 2015. Uh, Israel has new friends and perhaps you know, those uh, uh, usual suspects still remain as uh, the, the critics of Israel. Um, I imagine it wasn't a very easy job to walk into the UN every day to hear that unfair, um, unwarranted targeting of Israel, but it, it goes on. It goes on. Just um, this week, the ICC International Criminal Court said that they were going to investigate the alleged war crimes of Israel and Hamas, not Israel and the Palestinians, but Israel and Hamas, a designated terror organization. Uh, obviously, they came back with a lot of criticism for Israel. And let's take a listen to the initial reaction by Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu to this probe. This is a, an affront to all democracies, and everyone should stand together. And one more thing, if I can say, I'm in Jerusalem, not very far from the old city of Jerusalem, which has been our capital since the time of King David for 3,000 years. They say that if we build a house in Jerusalem, that's a war crime. Uh, so, what? you know, this is outrageous. Exactly that. Anything that you build beyond the 67 lines, that's a war crime. So this is outrageous. This is particularly outrageous because the ICC, the International Court, was built to prevent the kind of horrors that were committed on the Jewish people by the Nazis. And now they're turning their guns on the one and only state of the Jewish people. Well, we're not going to stand for it. And I'm going to fight this until I'm going to fight this in every place. Fight for the truth. Fight against this perversion of justice. You know, and again, we'll we'll get to the Iran deal. But the point being, and building up to that, is to say it's very difficult to you know focus on the priorities that Israel has when all of these you know sideline criticisms come from from these world bodies. You know, in your opinion, and being at the UN for so long, why is the world fixated on blaming Israel? The first of all, we prove that despite the. The number of resolutions and the ridiculous decisions of other international organizations, we are capable uh, of flourishing. Look at Israel today. Look at the way we, we deal with the COVID-19. 90% of Israelis above the age of 16 are vaccinated already. So we are used to it. 
I think it has to do with the Palestinians. For the last 72 years, the Palestinians focused on the blame game rather than a dialogue or, or helping their people. And even what we saw from the ICC, it's part of the diplomatic terrorism of the Palestinian leadership. Uh, and that's unfortunate. It will not take them anywhere. It will not support the population. And even when we speak about the vaccines, instead of purchasing vaccines to the Palestinians, they are blaming us for not doing it for them. For them. Uh, I, I hope that one day there will be a genuine leadership among the Palestinians that will actually focus on supporting the Palestinian rather than blaming Israel for everything. So what we saw at the ICC, at the Human Rights Council, at the UN, it's part of that uh, propaganda of the Palestinian to bash Israel, uh, trying to embarrass us, but it's not bringing them anywhere. You know, it's one thing to 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 hear this on a political level, um, on a global level. It's 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 awful that it happens, but I think it becomes more worrisome when we see these narratives and stereotypes portrayed in comedy in Hollywood. Recently, we saw Saturday Night Live and a show on NBC nurses portray um, the same narrative about Israel not giving. Uh, vaccines to the Palestinians, or in that show, uh, a, an Orthodox man refusing to have his life saved by a Gentile. Again, false. By all Orthodox accounts, it is the number one priority to save a life, regardless of, of how that's done. So, um, you know, these are all false, false, false. And as you said, you know, Israel does a good job at showing, you know, what they can do and, and, and correcting the narrative on the level that they can. But why is this happening more and more often? Well, I, I think today, you know, with social media, it's really easy to spread the lies. I have seen it a lot at the UN, mm -hmm. uh, but we, we stick to, to the truth, to the facts. And uh, also when you hear the allegations coming from the ICC about our soldiers, about our boys and girls of the IDF, this is outrageous. We are, I think, the, the most moral military you will ever find. I know that. I, I was a lieutenant in the military. I was deputy minister of defense. I know that we spend so much time and energy uh, trying to keep the morality of our military. And, and then you come to ICC and blame us uh, for protecting our civilians. Uh, it's a political game. We are used to it and we are we're ready to fight it in court, in the UN, wherever it will be needed. You know, and um, President Trump warned us about these acronymed organization, right? The WHO, the UN Human Rights Council, NATO. I mean, uh, anything with an acronym that was giving, that was getting uh, U.S. taxpayer money, he warned us against, which is why he pulled out of the UN Human Rights Council, because he thought that for, for no reason they're wasting taxpayer money. But not only that, that they, their, their main, uh, his main issue with them was how poorly they treated Israel. Again, you were there on, on the front lines watching that. Um, President Biden, again, within hours of, of uh, coming into the White House, reinstated that aid. We became, uh, again, members of the UN Human Rights Council, um, reinstating aid to the Palestinians, and again, um, very soon to UNRWA. Uh, that's what we are hearing. Um, you know, what does this do to the, the narrative that President Trump attempted to correct in the, in the Middle East? What does this do to the relationship between the Palestinians and the Israelis when without any leverage, without any time, without any delay, uh, the Biden White House, again, doubles down on its confirmation, on its support of these groups? So, Lisa, that's a U.S. decision, whether to join or, or to stay out. And we respect all decisions made by the administration. But I think the American people should ask themselves 
whether the taxpayers' money that uh, are being spent with those organizations are actually bringing stability to the region, are uh, helping the cause, supporting the U.S. I'm not sure. Take, for example, the Human Rights Council. The U.S. in the past pulled out, demanded a, a major reform. Back then it was a commission. Now it's a council. But it's the same, same game, same uh, blame game. You know, instead of actually dealing with human rights violations, the abusers themselves come to the Human Rights Council, countries like uh, Venezuela and Cuba, and, and they use that platform to, to blame Israel for human rights violations. It's, it's a joke. Right. So I think the U.S. should decide for itself whether they're being effective there or they're just sponsoring this circus. Right. Again, to add to your point, countries like Syria or Saudi Arabia or Iran becoming head of the Women's uh, Commission. I mean, like you said, uh, a joke. But I want to get to um, the main the main topic of our talk today, and that is, you know, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, obviously very worrisome for Israel. Uh, six weeks into the Biden administration, it seems like we are marching faster and faster towards a deal. And meanwhile, the optics are are not in favor of that deal. The centrifuges are spinning. Uh, Iran's regime has formally declared that they will not allow the inspectors to go in. We, they've been doing this for a long time. This is not new, but they've announced it. So a lot of muscle flexing by Tehran. Um, you know, not allowing uh, this to be even as strict as it was in 2015. And again, demanding that the sanctions be removed before they even come to the negotiating table. Meanwhile, like you said, the world has changed. We're not like, we're not where we were in 2015. Um, you know, what's, what's Israel's view on how quickly, uh, how stupidly uh, we're moving towards this deal? So I hope that will not be the case. Uh, I think it's important for Israel, for the stability of the region, for the allies of the U.S., and for the U.S. itself, not to try to appease the Iranians. It will be a mistake. Uh, look what happened in the last few years. You mentioned the inspectors. Uh, I want to add to that the ballistic uh, missile tests, uh, the proxies. They are spending, Lisa, $7 billion a year on terrorism. That, that's a huge amount of money to promote terrorism. And we see the, the results in Lebanon, in Syria, in Yemen, in the Gaza Strip, you name it. Wherever you will see terrorism in the Middle East, you can find the fingerprints of the Iranian regime. So it will be a mistake to try to appease them. And I, I still hope that uh, before the U.S. administration will take any decision, I hope they will actually call the allies of the U.S. Right. Maybe they can organize a summit in, the, in D.C., speak with the allies, hear the concerns, we know what's happening on the ground, and then they should take a decision, uh, not before that. Exactly right. Just this morning, uh, this is a Reuters headline I'm going to read to you. Britain, um, France, and Germany have scrapped a U.S.-backed plan for the U.N. nuclear watchdog to criticize Iran for reducing cooperation with its inspectors in a bid to avoid escalation and make room for diplomacy. So, the Europeans are basically hopping on board with the United States to keep bowing and bowing and bowing. Just last week, the U.S. said, we're ready to come talk to you. And Iran said, no, thank you. Um, again, begging for a deal. When I saw this headline, I thought to myself, well, there should be another article that says, you know, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Morocco, um, they refuse to allow Iran to go on this march forward to a nuclear weapon. I mean, what, what's going on here with the balance of the world? Are the, the West on the wrong side, and now we have these 
Arab nations joining Israel to defend against a nuclear Iran. What's happening? So I think we are here on the ground. We, we know exactly what's happening in Iran. You know, we retrieved uh, the, the uh, archives from Tehran and we actually proved to the world that from the beginning uh, they chose the way of deception. Uh, they were lying about their intentions. And I think today you have an alliance between Israel and the moderate Arab countries and, and we stand together and we will continue to stand together against the aggression uh, of Iran. And I would add to that, that any attempt to appease the regime will bring more instability to the region. Look what happened in the last uh, few weeks, uh, an attack on, on a U.S. target, an attack on an Israeli vessel um, in the Arabian Sea. So it's only continuing because once they see that you try to appease them, they will push us more. Um, let's talk a bit about what the Abraham Accords have done to this balance. Um, you know, obviously, like you said from the, the very beginning, that there's a, it's a new Middle East. It's a new calculation. Um, what's the sentiment in Israel? Is there more confidence in knowing that, you know, Israel's neighbors are on board with stopping Iran's aggression? Um, will, will, these, will this new coalition, will the Abraham Accords, the, this new Middle East, pose a challenge to the Biden administration in going forward? I'm very optimistic uh, about uh, the collaboration, the cooperation. You know, I visited uh, Dubai in 2016 in the UAE once I served at the UN, and it was so complicated to organize my trip there, Lisa, you know, in terms of security, and they asked it to be uh, confidential. And, and, and I went a few weeks ago, and I saw the excitement. And, uh, I think we will see more cooperation, more trade, commerce, and it will create more stability in the region. I think the administration should actually use the momentum and maybe promote peace with more nations in the region. So it's not about who actually initiated the process. It was a good initiative of President Trump. I think it's, it's good for the region, it's good for Israel, it's good for the U.S. And I would advise the President Biden to continue with the momentum bring more countries to the table, and hopefully we will see uh, more nations recognizing Israel in the near future. Do, does Israel need a, a broker in the White House? So let's say President Biden is not going to be the same as President Trump in brokering uh, further deals in the Abraham Accords. There are rumors that Saudi Arabia is close uh, to warming up relations formally uh, with Israel. Is that true, first and foremost. And secondly, would there be the option of Israel going at it alone and, you know, signing deals with its neighbors without help from the White House? So it's not a secret. We we, we had collaborated with many countries uh, quietly in the last few years, including some of the countries you mentioned. Uh, but it was very helpful once uh, you have the backing of the U.S. Uh, pushing the, the sites to do it publicly. So, yes, I'm sure we will continue to collaborate quietly, but if you want to actually get the picture or get the embassies open, I think we will need the support of the U.S., uh, the blessing of the U.S., and I hope we will get it. Do you think it's going to um, be some time before, um, you know, do you think the Israel issue will be put on hold because of a push forward with the Iran deal? Um, and how will that affect, you know, will it, will it create more excitement in the Middle East with countries trying to stop Iran and therefore getting closer uh, to Israel? What will, what will this 
what will a potential Iran deal do to the relationships that Israel has with its neighbors? So if, uh, God forbid, the deal will be the same deal, uh, I think it will put uh, all of us uh, under a lot of uh, stress and tension. Uh, and, and I saw it when I spoke with my uh, friends from the Gulf. They are stressed about the, this issue. They are stressed about the uh, Iranian regime aspirations in the region. So I think the mindset will be about how can we acquire more uh, defense systems, how can we get ready for uh, attacks coming from uh, proxies of Iran. So I think the mood in the region will not be a mood of peace and collaboration. It will be more of uh, protecting uh, uh, nations and collaborating on this issue. You know, um, I had uh, Victoria Coates and Len Kudarkovsky, two uh, former President Trump cabinet members um, who have recently penned uh, an article in the Jerusalem Post talking about a potential Cyrus Accords, looking at the people of Iran and the people of Israel, of course, and looking at the uh, potential collaboration, peace, prosperity, a future, just like the Abraham Accords that can happen between the people of Israel and the people of Iran. What's your reaction to that? I would say, inshallah, God will, but that Hashem, it will happen. You know, we, we admire the Iranian people. Um, in the past, we had collaborated uh, before the revolution, uh, and, uh, you know, we had so many friends and, uh, and partnerships, and we have nothing against the Iranian people. We know that they are suffering from the regime as well, and, and we hope that day will come, that we can actually go back to the days where we actually collaborated, worked together, and I hope it will happen very soon. Yeah, inshallah, exactly like you said. And lastly, I know that now your uh, energy and efforts are being uh, spent on the Likud party as as the chairman there in Israel. Um, tell us a bit, we have an election, very important election coming up in Israel at the end of March. Um, can you paint for us a picture of what's going on and how this will um, influence what's going on in the Middle East, uh, how this will influence Israel's national security and what's going on internally there? So, uh, as you mentioned, we have another election, the fourth election within two years, and I hope it will be the last one for the, at least for a while. Um, we don't know the results. Uh, what we are seeing is that the public in Israel is shifting to the right. So you're going to have more conservative uh, member of parliament in, in the Knesset, in our parliament. What do you but, attribute that to? I'm sorry to cut you off, because that's very interesting. Why are people moving to the right? Well, I, I think that they understand that uh, it is not about us or about the willingness of our leaders to make compromises, but it's about actually the other side willing to sit with us and recognize us. So they don't blame the leaders for not reaching out to the Palestinians, but basically they understand that we'll have to wait for a new leader to emerge. Maybe a new leader of, Palace, of the Palestinians like Anwar Sadat emerged in Egypt. We're waiting for that day, Lisa. Uh, so you will see more conservative uh, parliament. But having said that, within the conservative parties, you have a lot of them who are not willing to sit down with Prime Minister Netanyahu, unfortunately. So it's not sure that he will be able to form a government. I hope that he will be able to do it. I hope that the, the Likud party will get enough votes, enough seats, and we will find the partners to form a coalition, a stable one. But the, the way I, I can tell you one thing for sure, it will be a conservative parliament, but we don't know who will be uh, heading the government. 
Well, we'll be watching. Um, we obviously are very concerned about Israel's stability, Israel's security, uh, the future and prosperity of Israel and all the freedom-loving people of the Middle East who are friends uh, and allies of Israel. And I thank you for your work. I thank you for your time. And hopefully you'll come back to tell us more after the election. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. And to get our podcast every week, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to sign up for our daily top 10, you can go to our website, foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter. We'll see you all next week.